Hey guys, this is Kyle Klammer. And this is Zach Welch. And this is The Good Life Bow Hunter, official podcast of the NBA. That it is. Good to be back. Zach, how are you, man? Oh, not too bad. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. Um, well, we've got on a special guest tonight, uh, one of our own. We've got on Bryce Lamley here. Hey, Bryce, you want to just go ahead and introduce yourself here and we'll kind of get things rolling. Well, um, I guess I know you guys as dads better than I know you guys. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Bryce Lamley and from Fremont and former NBA chairman uh, twice, I guess, and uh, held several other positions and got in. Luckily enough, I got in on the ground floor of the NBA back in 1984. I saw a brochure shortly after um, it was formed. And. I don't know what my number is. It's like number 70 or 80 or something like that. But I was an early member and even had a feature article in the very first newsletter. So uh, NBA has been a big part of my life. Awesome. Where are you Where are you from, Bryce? Where do you live now? What do you do? Well, I, I live on the south side of Fremont on a little lake. Um, just got done retiring from uh, 33 years as a teacher, um, all but one of those years at Fremont. And uh kind of into the next chapter of my life, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. 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 Very good. Well, um, before we kind of get into the meat of this, um, I know, uh, Zach, you have a few um, kind of NBA announcements. You want to just uh, touch on those and we'll, we'll uh, go from there. So, yeah. So got a few updates from the meeting on Saturday. Um, if you haven't heard yet, we are going to go ahead and, go through with having Halsey this year. It may look a little different than years past. The plan is now to stick with the same dates of August 6th, 7th, and 8th. That's the Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And uh, the I guess the biggest update that we have is we aren't going to have the barbecue is the plan of now. Um, some of the novelty shoots might look a little different. We might have some. We might not. We don't know yet. we got to check and see what you know the regulations are and stuff is – as far as that goes, the week before Halsey starts, I guess, is when they're going to kind of make a decision on that stuff. And uh, other than that, you know, things should look fairly normal, I guess. Um, like I said, the biggest thing is they just aren't going to have the meal that Saturday night was the only major change they really made to it. But but no, they're, they're still having Halsey. So if, uh, if you don't have anything planned, try to get down there and make it. Definitely. As, as we've, as we've mentioned numerous times on the podcast, um, if you haven't been to Halsey, you need to go. <laughs> it's a great time. So definitely. It's a, it's a nice little opportunity to get tuned up before season starts a couple weeks after that. So definitely. if you haven't, if you have never been there, I mean, reach out to a member or something, somebody would be glad to take you along with them, I'm sure, but definitely got to make the trip down there. Sure. A little history on that, guys. Uh, yeah, please. First, the first or second jamboree the NBA held was at uh, Harry Strunk down in southwest Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And then I was director. We had it one year back east. We thought we'd – our membership in the early years was so central and western skewed that we tried to – we thought we'd hold a jamboree back east and try to attract some more members. And we had a great jamboree at Camp Moses Merrill that's uh, just east of Schuyler, uh, between Schuyler and North Bend, but on the south side of the river. 
had a great jamboree, but it didn't really boost membership like we were hoping at the time. And I don't know how we ended up at Halsey the next year, but it's been there ever since. Awesome. I, I knew that they had had it at a couple locations. I mean, early, early on, a couple different ones, but I didn't know exactly where it was, but. Oh, that Moses Merrill is a private campground, but it was it was a it was a neat jamboree to have it out there. And then Harry Strunk was pretty cool too. And that's kind of where uh, some old timers like Lyle Prell, Lyle Prell, even one year had a, a somebody brought a bear, a tame bear there. He was giving a bear hunting seminar, and all of a sudden somebody brought a tame bear. I don't know how that all ended up happening, but um, and that bear surprised me. I wasn't at that first jamboree, but I was at the second one that they had out there. And then, of course, like I said, I hosted the third one at, uh, there by Camp Moses Merrill. But somebody suggested that Halsey, you know, it's in the center of the state and mm -hmm. perfect location. It's not very far from anybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's been a good choice. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that. It sure seems like, I mean, I guess obviously that's all I can ever remember. And I have, it's been some really good memories there. And um, yeah, for sure. So, um, I guess Bryce, while we're on the while we're on the subject of uh, um, you know NBA stuff, um, you know we like you kind of mentioned, uh, you know you've been involved with the NBA for a long time, and um, you know we, we're always we always like hearing you know good stories from from the NBA and different things. Do you do you have any uh, you know experiences or anything related to the NBA? Or I mean, I'm sure you have some experiences, but anything that sticks out in your mind or good stories or anything that you wanted to share. Or, well, I, you know, like I said, I walked into um, walked into a sporting goods store in Fremont and picked up an application form in uh, probably September of 1984 and sent my money in right after that. And then the first newsletter for the NBA came out uh, the December issue of 1984. And right about the time I became a member, I killed a nice buck at my first teaching job down in southeast, way southeast Nebraska. And I wrote up a little story for it. And actually, I stocked a um, nice five by five on the ground in the hills mm -hmm. with a friend watching me. I mean, it was such a fluke, but it happened. And I got that article in the first newsletter, and I was all proud of that. And I thought it was cool. And about two or three newsletters later, the newsletter editor was Denny Graham, uh, who you guys probably know. But anyway, Denny says, hey, you want to take over the newsletter? I don't want to do it anymore. He had some kind of job. Um, change in, in his uh, um, career and, and so I became news editor very shortly after that and so I've been immersed in the NBA since the early days and um, of course that's how I got to know your dad Joel and uh, um, Joel was I believe my vice chairman when I was chairman the first time um, and he's one of, he's one of the really good guys in the in the sport as is Zach's dad and uh, I, one of the things I think was really cool about the NBA. Two, two quick stories. First of all, when traditional Bowhunter magazine came out, all of a sudden, you, not only was the magazine cool, but you found out there were all these suppliers for traditional hunting supplies that you didn't know about before. This is way before the internet. Sure. Well, the NBA was kind of the same way. It, it, all these guys I've met across the state, guys like the late Lyle Prell and then Dave Michaels and, and Joel Palmer and some of these early guys I would never have met if it wasn't for the NBA. And, and, and while I think our banquets and jamborees are honestly, and I'm not blowing smoke, I think they're second to none. And we've had a lot of guest speakers tell us that, but I think one of the coolest things is for me still is the fact that 
I've, it's given me a network of hunting friends that I would never have had otherwise. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an excellent point. You know, we, it seems like, I mean, yeah, we have members from all over the place. Every, I mean, we're probably, I don't know. Has anybody ever really checked? Are we, have we, do we represent every county in the, in the state? I would have to imagine it's, I, I, I don't know if we do, but pretty close probably. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That'd be an interesting, interesting, uh, I should have who's our or we should have Heather look at that and see if she could figure that yeah, out. Heather or, or uh Mickey My mom. <laughs> Am, yeah. I'm the news editor. I don't she probably has access to those lists too now. Yeah. But uh but we we've got pretty good coverage and, and um like I said at the outset, we kinda struggled in the early years to get a lot of Eastern membership. And I think that's changed. I think we're pretty well represented across the state now and We've, we've tweaked the Constitution a few times for Eastern and Western and um, Wildlife Rep and some things like that. We've made some changes to, I think, better reflect our, our membership and the differ, different, uh, all the different topics of discussion, you know, that a, an Eastern bow hunter might have compared to a Western guy. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we were, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, you'd... Um, wrote uh wrote that first story for uh, you know the nba newsletter and stuff and um you know zach and i were talking we were sort of talking on you know what what we could talk about different things and you know i know that your writing has been a you know pretty big part of your life and um you want to just share you know some stuff about that i know i know you wrote a book um and uh it, it, anyway just go ahead i'll just let you talk well i i don't know dad uh, dad's an english teacher and um mom ran a newspaper when I was in high school and so I've always been around that and um, I'd like to even think I'd have had a better love life if we'd have had texting back then you know back then it was all just love letters but anyway the the point being I've always felt like the written word was pretty important and uh, in high school went to state journalism and, and did that kind of stuff and um, I, I always and in fact I went to college at Wayne thinking that might be a major but the more I was there, I was like, I could, and this may sound arrogant, but I don't think it, I think it's just accurate is that I felt like I could do the, the writing and the journalism without having a major in it and ended up going toward uh, history teaching. But um, no, from the very early going, I, I was always wanting to write articles of sports writing, especially. And then of course, when hunting became such a huge part of my life, uh, it's only a natural thing to follow um, that. And then, uh, I don't remember what year it was. I finally got an article published in Bowhunter Magazine, but uh, getting a, the okay from M.R. James was a big deal and and uh, had quite a few published in Bowhunter and traditional Bowhunter. And it just, and then I also did a about 20 years worth of column writing for the Fremont Tribune, a weekly outdoor column. And finally after about, well, that's about a thousand columns and about 50 a year. And I finally, it's just like, I didn't have anything more to say. And so I, uh, quit that gig and I wrote uh, My Neck of the Woods in 2008 and then Platte River Driftwood in 2013 and then I've got two projects in the works right now actually more than that but two that are close to being done uh, one <clears throat> is a novel about life back in the late 70s in high school uh, life in the Midwest in, in high school it's kind of a interest it's a little sidelight does involve any bow hunting at the time, although it involves, does involve some hunting because that was, a, of course, a big part of my life, even in high school. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it was 
my senior year in high school, 79 to 80. And it seems like it's kind of a watershed in several ways. Um, and if you'll bear with me, it's the last, that was the first year for metrics and track. So we switched from yards to track or to metric in, in track and field. It was also the last year that the girls track meet and the boys track meet were held in different places. The girls track meet used to be held in North Platte and until the year after I graduated. Also, um, my senior year was the last year that boys ran 2.5 miles in cross country instead of 5K. And that change happened the very next year, although we did run 5K twice my senior year as kind of an introduction to it, but it was, it was not the official distance. And also when I was in high school and, uh, you know, we didn't have, the cell phones weren't even a rumor. Uh, remotes for TV, that was the closest kit. You know, dad's on the couch and get up and change the station. You know, he had three stations on, on TV. Uh, very few VCRs. If you wanted to watch movies, you had, went to the mini mart and bought or, and rented a, a machine that you brought home and tried to hook up to your TV to watch videos. That's how hard it was. Drive-in movie was a, a big deal. Um, you know, no automatic. When, when somebody said roll up the windows, they meant roll up the window. You really had to roll it up. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, so my goal here is, is several, you know, there are several goals on this book, but mostly to capture what life was like in small town Nebraska back in 1979 and 80. And I, I'm, I'm done with the book. I'm, I'm going through the editing process and adding a lot of appendices of a lot of high school sports uh, memorabilia and stuff. Of course, talking about chasing girls and driving cars and, pranks and, and sneaking into the pool at night and all that kind of stuff we did for fun, uh, where we really did make our own fun. I do think it was kind of a, a different time period. Um, and so anyway, that's one project. And the next, the other project is uh, tentatively my bend of the river, which would be a follow-up to my first book, My Neck of the Woods. So I've been pretty busy since retirement and just haven't got anything finished yet, but get close. Oh, that's, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Look forward to those for sure. Yeah, definitely. Really interesting. Well, I think you guys are both runners, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so and I I watched you both at the state meet and and uh, so I think you know people, I don't know I think for a lot of small town kids, high school sports are pretty important or going to the football games and going to the basketball games are pretty important and and so one of the things I'm trying to really focus on with that is you know I I remember a senior section came out for my year in, in school. And one of the girls said her favorite memory was when we qualified for state and basketball. And I'm, you know, she wasn't on the team. And it, to me, it's like, it, it just reinforced the fact that I think in small towns, there is this feeling of team um, that pervades the whole school if things are going well. And so kind of want to capture that. And I, I do think, you know, small town Nebraska is a pretty special place even today. Definitely. No, I, I agree. 100%. Definitely. No, that'll be, that'll be interesting. Um, yeah. <clears throat> do you, uh, you know, Bryce, you talked about, uh, you know, my neck of the woods. Um, you want to just kind of give a brief, you know, uh, I don't know if you can I do a, s a synopsis of it, I guess, but just, uh, you know, what, what, what's that all about? I mean, I, I know I've read it. Um, it's been a long time ago, I guess. I know it. 2008. Yeah. My dad, uh, my dad, my dad shoved it under my nose right when it came out. Yeah, like, I, I hey, remember read this, but <laughs> I remember getting a copy signed by when I was yeah. 
I think it was right when you wrote it that first year you had a little booth set up at the banquet and I yeah. still got a signed copy on my dresser. I've read a handful of times, but. Oh, good. Uh, well, yeah. 2008 and uh, it was, you know, I think the book is divided into thirds. About a, a third of the stories are whitetail hunting and about a third of them were kind of exotic hunting, whether that would be antelope or black bear or caribou or I took two trips to Africa um, back in 94 and 99. And then the, the last third was just kind of a mixed bag of, of shorter stories, hunting related, but a lot of family influence and stuff like that. And it's well received and um, it's sold out. I, I, in fact, I was looking today, I think this is the only pristine copy I have. And it's, I mean, I don't have any more. And one of the, my thoughts is when I put out the successor to that book, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to do uh, a combined issue or maybe run a few more of these copies. It's, it's, it's not cheap to run more copies of the same book, but it's, that's an option. Um, I had a lot of requests for other copies, but I was glad to sell it out. And then um, Platte River Driftwood came out in 2013. So, but my neck of the woods, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think one of the reasons it's successful, especially with bow hunters, is because I think for guys like you and, and I, bow hunting is a very personal experience. And, um, and, I, and that's always the angle I've tried to write from is how personal the experiences for me, how much I enjoy just being in the woods, success isn't the only way to measure a hunt and all that kind of stuff. The same stuff that I'm sure you two guys were brought up on it in your homes. Yeah, no, definitely. That's well said for sure. You know, I think it uh, seems like a lot of times you get caught up on the inches and, and uh, antlers and horns and whatnot, but yeah, you're exactly right when you, when it really comes down to it and you break it down, it's just being out there and enjoying it. And, um, experience. That's what it is. Yeah. Yep. Now, Bryce, when you wrote that book, did, did you have the idea to write it or did someone give you the idea or how, how'd you go about kind of putting that book together? Well, that's a good question. I, um, a lot of the stories in there were originally published in Bowhunter magazine or traditional Bowhunter magazine or a few just in the NBA magazine. And uh, I actually received encouragement from TJ Conrad's at uh, traditional Boner magazine. And um, I, it seems to me like either Dwight Shue or MR James also tried to give me some encouragement too. You know, and I think now there's, there's, you know, quite a few books like that out there. Uh, but in 2008, there weren't very many yet. And, um, not as many people were on Kindles and so forth. And so I think I probably was kind of got my book written at the end of that time period when it was still, when the getting was still pretty good. But, uh, no, I just had some, I, I guess I've always wanted to do that too. I remember even as a kid, you know, taking paper and folding it in half and making little books, you know, and stapling it in the middle and, you know, making little books of whatever. And, uh, I don't know, I think in a way it's, uh, it's a way of leaving legacy maybe and uh, kind of a, a record of where you've been and so forth. And that's, again, that's one of the reasons I want to so bad get this other book written that's not even about hunting, but just to kind of capture that moment if I can. And with the hunting book, it, it's, you know, capturing those memories while they're still fresh. And then when you can, you know, like you look up at the wall, you're at your a deer on the wall and it brings back all those memories 
that's what I'm trying to do with with the with my neck of the woods is trying to you know the, the trials and the tribulations and so forth before you finally end up getting that trophy and uh, I don't know it's a labor of love I, I, I like I like to write a lot oh, that's great Bryce uh, you know we uh, <clears throat> I know uh, you know in, in your book you talk a lot about um, whitetail hunting for sure um, and I think that's kind of a kind of a passion of yours I guess I would I would say as, as it is many of ours that live in Nebraska but um, you know, you want to, uh, touch on that a little bit, maybe talk about some, uh, you know, memorable hunts or, or things that really stick out in your mind. Um, deer hunting was kind of about the last thing I got into with the hunting. And I think during my generation, um, many of us, you know, were started with small game rabbits and squirrels. Then, you know, we poked a thousand holes in the sky before you finally got a pheasant or quail and, and and or a duck or a goose and and then well actually geese weren't even that was even a hope there were so few geese and of course now you know geese everywhere um, so things have really changed but uh, it was kind of one of those progressions where you kind of worked your way up to deer and killed a deer with a rifle as a sophomore in high school but as you get older into those latter years of high school and a three sport athlete and you're so gung ho on that doesn't leave a ton of time to do all that and gun hunting such a short little window anyway but then I went to Wayne State and and again that's the summer before I went to Wayne State Wayne dropped cross country and about and wrestling and swimming and some other minor sports and <clears throat> here I was I was going up there to run and you know I needed something to do before uh, pheasant season and duck season started and I had a buddy of mine who had been bow hunting for a year or two, that high school buddy of mine, he finally convinced me to give it a shot. And, and he, he tells the story all the time. He said, I created a monster and he did. I, he got me into bow hunting and Katie barred the door. I mean, that's where I've been ever since. And, and I, I think the nice thing about whitetails, you sort of mentioned it already, you know, it's available to almost everybody in Nebraska, but it's every man's hunting option probably in what, 45 of the 50 states, you know, they can probably be within driving range of whitetails. And, and so even the guy that maybe dreams about elk or caribou or something like that, or moose, but whitetail is something he can do. And it, it's something like, you know, if a work a guy works, he can still do it on weekends, doesn't have to travel very far. And if a guy gets the right kind of job, like a teaching job, he can hunt almost every night if he's not coaching in the fall. And so I, I think that's one of the reasons I gravitated toward whitetails. And I think whitetails also offer, they're a natural chess game. And if you like, you know, if you like to learn and like to match your wits, I think deer are a really good uh, adversary to, to do that with. It's intoxicating. Definitely. I would agree with that. I'm sure you would echo that as well, Zach. <laughs> Definitely. I think the I think the whitetail is something that once you get hooked on it, it'll drive a guy crazy. I mean, there there's something else. A lot of those Western guys, you know, they got elk and all that stuff, like you said, Bryce. But <clears throat> something to be said about hunting whitetails right here in Nebraska. I mean, it's just like you said, it's a chess game. They're they're a different animal. They'll drive a guy insane, especially this time of year. You're already thinking about, you know, what are the deer yeah. doing? What what can I be doing now to be ready when September one rolls around, you know, it's something you can't get with a lot of other species. 
definitely. Bryce, I, I know you're a big traditional hunter. Is that, is that something you've always done? Have you dabbled with compound or how did you get started with traditional archery, I guess? 81, um, when I actually first got into the bow hunting, there was a bow shop in Norfolk. I don't think it's there anymore called Elkhorn Archery. <laughs> and uh, went there, got a browning compound, browning uh, nomad, a used one, and hunted for seven seasons with with the browning compound. I, I ended up buying a new one after a couple of years, a Bushmaster. Um, and even then, I liked the feel of a wood-handled bow. And so I think that was one of the things, you know, and a lot of my buddies had metal risers, and I just liked the, the browning wood handles and, and um, my taxidermist and, and former uh, NBA wildlife rep, Jim Newman, he was getting into um, traditional about 1987, 88. And I was, I was interested in it too. And I had gotten a Paul Schaefer silver tip recurve and I was having problems shooting it that year of 87 and I ended up killing a, a Pope and young deer that year at 10 yards but I used my 20 yard pin on it and I, I spined him and I still got the deer, but I, you know, I told myself, you know what, if that was a stick bow, I probably would actually made a better shot. I, you know, I, you know, I hope I would have anyway. And so I think that convinced me that maybe I wouldn't be limiting myself as much with a stick bow as, as I thought I would be. And so I, I endeavored the next year, 88 to, to switch over. And it wasn't without some trials. I, I missed a good deer and actually, the deer I ended up killing that year, I missed early in the year. And uh, I ended up killing him later in, in late October. I missed him in September. But, uh, and so since the 1988 year, it's been stick bow for me. And um, I had a brief moment of, of doubt in the late 90s and shot the compound for a couple of weeks and then went right back to the, rec or to the back, by then I was shooting a longbow. And uh, I don't feel at least in eastern Nebraska, I don't feel really limited. I, you know, I set myself up for close shots and a lot of places I, I couldn't shoot thir past 30 yards if I wanted to. And so I don't feel that limited. And there are times I think it's even an advantage. Now, obviously, you know, a buck steps out there at 30 yards, I'm not going to shoot at him probably. And so that's a situation where I do feel a little bit limited, but that's part of the chess game. And so it doesn't bother me. Um, you know, this past year, uh, I ended up killing a, a smaller five by five, but uh, had three really, really, really close chance opportunities at deer that were hung up just out of range or just didn't work out. Um, never, and one of those was a, a range situation. And uh, he'd have been a dead deer with a compound, assuming I could shoot well at, at like 23 yards. I gambled that he was going to be closer and he walked out of my life. And that deer was big, really big. And uh, I, I'm at a point in my life it didn't bother me that much. I mean, I, you know, disappointing, but I don't regret it. And uh, I don't know. I think the stick bow, well, for one thing, I'm not a tinkerer. Uh, guys might know Dave Michaels out at Scott's Bluff. Dave Michaels is one of these guys that tinkers with everything. And he's just, I mean, he, know, he knows that bow inside and out and more power to him. That's not me. I, boy, I get something shooting right, I'm, I'm done. I'm done tinkering, and I'm, any extra time I'm going to be spending thinking about hunting or something like that or fine-tuning my stands or shooting 
not I'm just not I'm not one of those guys that likes to tinker with equipment very much. And so I think traditional bows are probably right up my alley anyway. And might I add, you've killed some really really nice deer with a traditional bow oh. too. <laughs> my goodness. Okay. Some well, you spend enough spend enough time in the woods, you know. Hopefully, you get lucky once in a while. But, but yeah, I think you know. Again, I think especially eastern Nebraska with with a, a stick bow, you know, if you adjust your hunting to to your range, I think you can do just about as well. And so, um, I don't feel I don't feel handicapped. Um, and you know, and let me add, you know, like there are times when I'm antelope hunting. I feel handicapped, um, but <laughs> Me too, even with the compound. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I think that's the nature of that game. But yeah. it's it's still. I mean, again, if 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 we were only in it for success reasons, we'd probably be hunting totally differently. And uh, you know, again, we might be spending more time with a gun, and, and there's nothing wrong with hunting with a gun. But I think if if it was only about success, we wouldn't be using sticks and string and it's not just about that but yeah you you can be successful if you fine-tune your fine-tune what you're doing and you really study the animals definitely um well i guess uh um i should real quick here why don't we uh i don't know did it pop up on your guys' screen it tells me that we have five minutes remaining so that oh, yeah. let's do that now yeah, evidently I don't have a free, <laughs> free unlimited. So let me let me end this meeting and save this recording quick, and then I'll 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 make a new one real quick, and we'll we'll start here again. In just a second. Sounds good. That sound all right? Yep. Sounds okay. good. All right. Give me one second here. All right, guys, we're back. We had a little. Um, I guess I could probably edit that out, so maybe I don't even need to say anything about it. But <laughs> um, anyways, uh, while we're on the subject of, uh, of whitetails here, I think that's kind of where we were. Am I, am I right? Yep. Um, Bryce, I know you've, uh, like I said, just kind of briefly mentioned you've killed some really nice deer. Any, uh, any specific hunt that sort of sticks out in your mind that you want to share with us? Um, Boy, every one of them is memorable. Uh, I remember one that was kind of neat that uh, um, I, sometimes on the river bottom, it'll be so quiet early in the year. And I'm one of those guys that will get out there September 1st if I can. And I think the opener was still September 15th that, that year when this happened. But uh, a train came rumbling by and mosquitoes were bad. And it, I was still trying to video some hunts. And so, and I'd lost video light. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and tiptoe out now. And also, when I do that, there's a, there's a, a little, it's actually an irrigation corner, a triangle that I was going to walk. When I got left the woods, I was going to walk through this, this irrigation, um, just this triangle of grass and weeds and stuff that wasn't uh, part of the cornfield on the way back to the pickup. And it's a place where sometimes you'll see deer, they're shortcutting me and, and, and sneaking by me. And as I'm walking through there, and again, it's probably 10 minutes to quit in time. And, you know, geez, there's a back of a deer. I can see him in the grass and not very far ahead of me. And I quick grabbed an arrow and just about got on the string and he raised his head up and oh my gosh, it's a buck. And and I had to, and it was definitely a shooter and it looked like he had a drop time. And he, he saw me, but I was pretty well camouflaged where I was standing. And it was like, he didn't, he didn't know whether 
to go to the corn or back into the woods. It's kind of caught in between, but in some pretty tall grass, probably, you know, mid, mid, uh, mid, or mid body on himself. And he looked toward the corn, he looked back toward the woods. And by then I was at full draw and I let him have it. And uh, it turned out that I can't remember about 20 yards on the ground. And uh, he ran off and, and ran toward the corn, but I didn't hear him go in the corn. I lost track of him in, the, in this really high grass. He went through some higher stuff that went closer to the edge of the corn. And uh, um, boy, I was just positive. I, I you know, got a pretty good shot on him and came back. And I was going to, you know, you guys know well enough that if you're in grass, it's hard to get a good blood trail. If you're on leaves, no problem. But boy, on grass, sometimes it's, it can be hard to find. I was having a little hard time with the blood trail. And so I thought, well, I'm going to come back in the morning. And so I went to school, got all my lesson plans all ready for the next day. I was going to call in sick. And then I, and I kept checking weather channel. Well, now thunderstorms are moving in from like two different directions. And I'm like, I got to get out there now. I can't wait till morning. And went back out there probably at one in the morning or something like that. And I was going through the edges of the corn rows. I thought if we made it to the corn, better chance of finding some blood. And I'm standing there just, just thinking, what do I do next? I can't, I can't find any more blood. And I heard a big groan and it was, he was long dead, but all the air had been building up. And then when it finally expelled it, it made a loud groan, walked right to him. And he's just laying in the high grass and a big five by six or something like that with a, a curly drop kind on one side. But again, and I mean, you just, had I stayed in my stand that night, I'd never seen him. And, um, but it was one of those deals where I think, you know, and I also wouldn't have had time to range him or anything like that. And it was just one of those things you had to be there. And sometimes you get lucky like that. And sometimes that's all it takes is to be lucky. Um, the big deer that I killed, well, that's another thing. When we, when I uh, gutted that deer, he was full of corn. And I think he was actually bedding in the corn and coming back to the woods at night which is the exact opposite of what you would think. It's just, it's counterintuitive. Well then, and that's probably the second biggest deer I've killed in Nebraska. Well, the biggest deer I killed in Nebraska, I killed September 11th. Oh, I don't, I can't remember the year 15 or 16 or something like that. Um, but anyway, he um, grows in the 170s, but he, he came from the corn too. And I was actually getting ready to get out of the tree just a little bit early because the train was rumbling by. And I sometimes will use trains to cover my exit. And I'm really hunting close to, pretty close to railroad tracks. And uh, I was just getting ready to get down. And all of a sudden, here he comes from the corn down the trail that I was hoping he'd come out of the woods from. And had time to get an arrow or get my quiver back off because I had the quiver over my head. Um, I, I, I carry a side quiver that I loop over my head. I got the quiver off, got the bow, uh, arrow back on the string, and he came in, crossed my trail, and he looked both ways like he couldn't decide what to do next. And um, when he finally turned just enough to get a good broadside shot, I shot him too. And what's interesting, again, is both those two deer, it was an evening hunt, last minutes of shooting light, and both of them were killed coming from the corn back to the woods, which I don't think that's normal, but I think it's you know, I think it's worth mentioning that you know, got to be ready for anything. Yeah, no, definitely. It's seems like just about when you get them figured out, then they do something you don't expect them to do. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which is exactly like you said, it's the chess game. So that's that's what makes it fun, I guess. Is 
it's always something different. You know, I can't ever say I've ever had two two evenings or mornings in the woods that were exactly the same, which yeah. is, I think, kind of part of the allure of it. And, yeah. But, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, we're talking about whitetails and stuff. And, you know, I know uh, you sort of mentioned too, Bryce, you've been to, to Africa a couple times and kind of done some other other hunts. You want to talk about some of those experiences, uh, just where you've been, what, what you've done, and you know, if well, you have recommendations too for, for people? Or... Well, I think uh, the reason Africa appealed to me was because um, as a school teacher, it was really hard to get extended leave. And I don't live, you know, if I lived in western Nebraska, I might be able to get to elk hunting ground and, and work in a three or four day hunt, you know, without, without cutting too, into too much of my um, vacation time. But the school I taught at was really tied on, on vacation time and it was just hard to get extended leave like that. And so moose and, and uh, elk seemed to be off the table. Uh, caribou with an early start was an option, but uh, Africa seemed like a better option. And so <laughs> for many years, I would put all my house painting in the summer money and I refereed uh, officiated basketball for many years. I put all that money into a separate fund. And to be honest with you, the getting was still good back in the 90s as far as money for your hunting money for um, value for your dollar in Africa. And uh, I, by then, and we've joked about this, but I was already good friends with Gene and Barry Wentz. And we can't remember how it actually started. But by 94, really good friends with both. And those guys, well, Gene was setting up a hunt in 94. Then I went with both. Well, and Barry went also, but Gene set it up. And then in 99, I went with both of them and they both set it up. So I went with those guys in 94 and 99. We spent seven days in South Africa and seven days in Zimbabwe on both hunts and just had a, a wonderful time. Met some really good people. Uh, the guys I were with, we were all, um, all stick bow guys. And so we kind of shared that as, as um, you know, a, a, a connecting um, thread between all of us. But uh and I do think that the trophy fees on African animals at that time were reasonable enough that it wasn't uh, a, it wasn't a backbreak because I certainly wasn't rolling in money, but I was able to pay for that hunt and some more with just my money from second jobs and so forth. Actually, I should say third jobs because I was still coaching. So, but I was able to make both those trips and what a fun time and, and some good people. And, and honestly, animals are animals. I, I mean, it was kind of fun even there to, we did, we weren't as restricted as I think some groups are when they go to Africa. Um, Gene and Barry had kind of paved the way for that. And so we got to do a little freelancing of our own. And I took over a turkey blind. Uh, it wasn't a double bull. I don't think even double bulls were around in 94. Maybe they were, but this was a contraption that Lyle Prell, who was one of the um, forefathers of the NBA, he had uh, designed and then uh, my brother Jason and I kind of perfected what we thought was a version of that. I took one of those and, and shot an animal from, from one of those blinds, but also had my blind stomped into the mud by a bunch of hippopotamus. And so we had some crazy, and it's also weird. You show up to your, to your uh, uh, blind and there's these droppings the size of basketballs or volleyballs. Well, elephants had just been through and this was on, in, uh, and these are wild elephants. It wasn't, a, it was a huge uh, place in, in Zimbabwe that we were hunting. And then also one of the guys, I think it was actually Barry Wenzel had, he was sitting down and um, shot his target arrow or 
judo, went out and fetched it, tried again, did that three or four times, you know, just to get acclimated to the blind and so forth. And an hour or two later on those same rocks that he'd been stepping across, big old black mamba just stretched out over those rocks. And um, when the guy, the guy came back to check on him at noon to see if he'd killed anything, he said, no, nah. he said there was this big long black snake across these rocks and the white pH just got even whiter. And he's like, and he put one of his trackers on there with a shotgun waiting for that snake to come out again and shoot it. And he moved him to a different blind. So we had some pretty cool stories that, that came out of the, the trips to Africa. Um, my brother, Scott, has gone a lot. And if somebody's interested from the NBA and in, in going to Africa, whether first time or, or later, Scott would be a really good resource down in Bankelman. Um, he has planned to go back this year and uh, going after Cape Buffalo. But I think, uh, I, in fact, I just got a text from him yesterday that he doesn't know if it's going to be on or not because of this COVID stuff and it might be put off till next year. Um, it's not a done deal yet, kind of like the Jamboree. We don't know exactly everything that's going to happen yet. Um, but Scott would be a really good resource for somebody that's wanting to go to Africa. And, and he's brought some, he's taken some guys from, uh, from the States over. Um, also was able to hunt, uh, you know, early, again, with my teaching uh, schedule, limiting what I could do for elk or, or uh, moose. And I still have never hunted either of those species, but I've been able to hunt caribou and Sitka blacktails in, Al in Alaska was a wild and fun time and an awesome hunt, although we had some close calls with some brown bears up there um, and around our tent and so forth, and we could hear them walking outside the tent, and Scott and I both, what, I went with my brother Scott, and remember one night we both kind of heard it, but we didn't wake up, or we didn't, you know, like, it's one of those deals when you're about ready to go to sleep, and you think you heard something, but you weren't sure. And then you heard it again, and you both bolt upright and look at each other. He's grabbing for his shotgun. I'm looking for my 44. And uh, um, it turned out the next day you can see the tracks right around our tent, you know. And uh, I, I don't. I think if I was to go back there, I would get one of those electric fences. You can get one of those uh, portable electric fence units. I would think I'd sleep a little better. I, I've heard people say they don't know if it's stopping or not, but you at least might get a better night's sleep. So. Yeah, no, those uh... – <laughs> Those brown bears up there—that's a whole other, whole other thing yeah. for sure. But definitely, no, definitely but, in a wrestling match with one of those yeah. pretty quick. Yeah, I think so. Excellent. Um, well, good. I guess uh, I think that's kind of touched on. Yeah. Most of what I wanted to touch on, Zach. You got any? Any other things that you had, or uh, nothing that I can think of, other unless Bryce, you have anything coming up that any special hunts you're planning this year or in the coming years? I guess. Well, I got a guy in Wyoming. I've got some points built up in Wyoming for elk, but um, I don't know if it's me slowing down or st I've still got a daughter in high school and one daughter in college, and so I don't like to get too far from home while they're still. Um, teenagers, I guess I should say. And, uh, but, uh, and so I may put the, the, my first elk hunt off for another year or two, but I will go out for antelope again in Southeastern Montana. It's my brother, Jason, that guides up in Canada. It's his really, it's his only real chance to do a big game hunt of his own. And so it's a chance for me to spend time with my brother. And um, that's a hunt that I was able to do a little bit when, still teaching but now that i'm not teaching it's perfect timing for me to get up there and 
sometime in August. And this last year, I went up in August and um, it was still wet. Uh, and I didn't end up getting a shot uh, the first four days I was up there, or five days I was up there. And so I came back and then I went back up there in early September. And uh, boy, things look totally different. And um, the, the September hunt, the, the antelope were definitely more active, um, covering more ground, which means they're going to come to water more often. And uh, also visibility was better. It's hard to believe, but just the difference between August 15th and September 1st or, or 6th or whatever it was when I went up there, um, just the difference in the in how much the vegetation had dropped in in uh, southeastern Montana that year had, had made a big difference. And so I think it's kind of like maybe back here in eastern Nebraska, the difference between being in the woods in, in late September, then all of a sudden in mid-October, things look totally different. And uh, And that's one of the other things I think that, you know, we bow hunters like about our sport is, you know, there, there's not a, a pressing clock. If you want to hunt a little bit in September and a little bit in October and a little bit in November, you can, where if you're strictly a gun hunter, you're limited to those nine days or, or you're limited to December with the, the muzzleloader season. And so I think we've got the best of, of that world where we get to see literally, we go from mosquito infested and green everywhere to cold as heck in the end of December and everything in between. And I like that. I, there's just something about that, that it feels natural. Um, maybe when I was a kid, it was going from dove season to duck season to pheasant and quail season to, to deer season and then finish up with was hunting in the snow. But today, I think with just the bow and arrow in hand, you can experience all that different weather, all the different, um, all the different challenges which is your stick and string and and uh i don't know it's 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 intoxicating it's it's fun to be out there and, and witness all those sunrises and sunsets and all the other stuff you get to see out there definitely you sort of feel like too when you're out there you know from the well it used to be like you mentioned the 15th of september and now it's the first but it's kind of like almost uh i always i always think of it in my head as kind of a build-up you know it's like mm-hmm. building up to that to that you know first part of November right. when, when everything just goes crazy. And so there's always just like this anticipation of, you know, when's that going to start? Like, when are we going to start seeing this? When's that going to, you know, I just, I don't know. I just, I, I love that, that aspect of it too. It's just kind of that, uh, you know, and, and like you said, you know, you sort of get to see the, the changing of the season and, you know, from late summer into to the early fall and um, leaves turning. And, you know, when you're, when you're walking to your stand in September, you're, dead quiet when you're walking to your stand in late October you sound like a million uh elk running through the woods because there's so many leaves on the ground and <laughs> you know but yep. anyhow, it's just kind of it's all uh all, all part of it I guess but well a lot of times those early September hunts too you, you find out what you forgot to put in your pack and yeah <laughs> and it's like, geez I gotta remember that next time but I, like you said there is kind of a build-up and um and in some ways, my strategy is like that too. You know, early in the year, you hunt the edge a lot and get in and out without even letting the deer know you're being, you know, they're being hunted. But by, by late October, you know, you're starting to go to your good spots a little bit and or your best spots. And, and so it is in a way, it's like a buildup. You're, you're, you're building up to, you know, when you could finally go into really close to the bedding area or whatever your, you know, you know your perfect scenario is and um, moving the trail cameras from, from like field lanes and then get them on the scrapes and so forth. And there's just, 
a lot of varying tactics. And, and one of the other things I've learned partly from talking to the guys in, in the NBA and also in dealing with uh, people with, uh, with Sitka, guys that hunt all across the United States, the deer we hunt are almost like different species. I mean, they do such different things. And even where I'm at, the deer on the bottom are almost, they're not different species, but they really behave differently than some of the deer up in the, in the bluffs. And so there's just so many different challenges and, and different ways to hunt them. And um, you're really only limited by your, your own, uh, um, I guess, your own curiosity and, and, and your own tactics. And I think that's one of the things, too, that I like about hunting is, you know, I've killed a number of my big deer from the ground and, and one or two from stalking, which is kind of unusual with whitetails, especially in eastern Nebraska. And um, I also hunt from really short tree stands. And so it's a lot of different ways to kill deer. And I've hunted them from irrigation pivots and things like that, too. And so I think that makes it that it, it feels more like you've got your tactics it almost feels like, you know, you're, you're an athlete and you're looking at, here's a different play. I'm going to try this play now. I'm going to try this play. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes whitetail deer so exciting. Well said. Um, very good. Well, anything else, Zach? I don't think so. That was all really good. Yeah, no, I, I agreed. Very, very, uh, for sure. I would echo that as well. Um, any any uh any closing thoughts, Bryce, or anything else you wanted to kind of you know mention as far as the NBA or anything else? Um, just kind of leave you up for um, well, sort of closing thought. Well, I, I mentioned it before, but I think um, I've heard I've gotten to know a number of our guest speakers really well, and they're not blowing smoke when they say that our banquet is top notch. Um, and I know um, Joel Climbers had a lot to do with that, but I think that, you know, it doesn't matter who the, our guest speaker is. We still fill that place. And I've actually had some things come up lately. I've only been able to attend the, the last few, but I probably attended the first 30 um, and didn't miss one. I've been about every other one since because of different reasons, but including girls state basketball where I had some local teams qualify that I had close family or friends involved in. But um, I, I, it's not blowing smoke when you say that these speakers that go all around the country think that we really do a, a first rate job at our banquets. And I think that's the reason our people keep coming back is that they're, they're they know they're going to get a good product. Um, it's also a reunion of sorts. And it seems to me in this day of social media, that those reunions would be harder to repeat, but it doesn't seem to be in the NBA. It seems like we've got this tradition going that even though we're actually in more contact with each other on both side or, or whatever, um, they, we still come together in Kearney and a whole bunch come together in Halsey and uh, reinforce those bonds. And, and, uh, and while the NBA has a political um, mess or motivation i think our, our our biggest strength is the social message that we send and also heavily the very first couple jamborees you saw mostly guys and you go to jamborees now and it's families and, and kids everywhere and and you know the amount of women there compared to men 
pretty close to even. And same thing with our banquets. The first banquets were mostly a bunch of guys and a few wives that didn't look like they, that looked like they didn't want to be there. And you go to our banquets today for the last 20 years, and it's it's family. And I think the NBA has done a, a really great job at promoting bow hunting as a family experience. Um, women bow hunters are the um, well, women are the biggest, inc- the fastest increasing percentage of hunters in general, and I think bow hunting is is experiencing that as well. And so I just I think that the, the NBA has done a, a much better job of that than some organizations have. And um, it's a it's a challenge though to keep our membership up. And uh, I don't know, I don't have the answers for that. I'm not a good salesman, but uh, um, I, I do think it, if you hunt in Nebraska with a bow and arrow, uh, you ought to you ought to consider being a member. That's for sure. Hundred percent agree with that. So. Very good. Well, again, thank you, Bryce. Really appreciate you coming on uh, this evening and you know taking some time out of your out of your Sunday evening here and. Um, just great chatting with you. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, it always amazes me just, uh, you know, and I, I know Zach and I have talked about this before, just, you know, we just, uh, we talk about the NBA and, um, you know, it's a great organization and, um, you know, there's just, we just have so many, um, great people and just different personalities and just different, uh, I don't know, just a big, I guess, sort of, I don't know, sort of melting pot of different different people that uh, make up our organization and I think they think you're exactly right that's what makes it great and um, just having families involved and everything so um, it's, uh, it's good so thank you appreciate yeah, it thank you you're welcome say hi to your dads for me yep. Will Will do. Do. yep so hopefully they'll be listening to this at some point but <laughs> all right <laughs> <So>. <laughs> sounds good well thank you so much Bryce appreciate oh, it you're welcome Thanks, guys. Thanks.